Amen. Please be seated. So you can turn in your Bible to Genesis 1. We'll look at uh, 1 1 through 2 3. Uh, there are some Bibles available in the back. Also, the um, that kind of visual arrangement of the, the passage there on a sheet of paper. Um, Briefly, let me uh, reintroduce the series that we started last week. We're looking at the first three chapters of Genesis um, in a series titled The Beginning of the End, and that is to say uh, that God is um, hes not just kind of uh, portrayed as starting everything in some neutral sense here. He's, he's creating with a purpose. The beginning chapters of the Bible are going somewhere it's shaping a particular kind of world that we need a biblical worldview to be able to understand. Um, and so, we're, um, since God is an eternal God and looking at, at the end from the beginning, uh, we're, not, um, we're not looking at these chapters as if none of the rest of the Bible has been written. We're looking at the, the chapters, we're, we're, we're reading even this early part of uh, the Bible the way Jesus read the Bible. And so we're going to take uh, the whole context, context of the whole Bible into consideration as we look over these initial chapters, um, Genesis 1 through 3. Um, and let me just clarify something from last week, and we'll talk about it again this week, uh, maybe a couple more times as we look at uh, the next couple sermons. But um, I realize it's uh, for a lot of us, especially those of us who have grown up or lived in evangelical circles for a long time, it's very difficult for us to look at this text um, the way the ancient readers would have looked at the text, the way the, the original author would have uh, intended for us to look at this text. It's, it's very easy for us to look at this text from kind of the scientific, uh, materialistic, secular worldview that is very deeply embedded in us. Um, I, I can probably tell you there's a difference between that and the way we should be reading this Bible. I can tell you that uh, a lot of times over the next few weeks and be very difficult for any of us to get. It's difficult for me to uh, hold on to this kind of biblical worldview uh, enough to shape my reading of this text. I just expect it to answer different questions than it was meant to answer. And, uh, and I, I hope I'm not communicating by that, that um, especially here this first chapter of Genesis is not historical. It's not a scientific narrative. That doesn't mean it's not historical, right? Only if you have the equation in your mind, something's got to be scientific, something's got to explain processes, procedures, order, answer the how question in in minute detail. Only if you've got that uh, kind of requirement for a historical narrative in mind, which is actually kind of a recent development in the history of the world, uh, that that a historical narrative would mean a scientific narrative. then in that case, it's not historical, right? It's not meant to be scientific. It's not meant to give us answers to those particular questions. That's not to say it's not historical. Ultimately, uh, it's recorded in the Bible to show us what happened at the beginning, right? What happened and who did it and why, right? So not so much the how or in what order, that level of precision that we're looking to explore with um, things like biology or astronomy or whatever, uh, but um, but the who question and, and the why question and and large scale what questions those are that's what's being answered in our text so um, and ultimately as we'll see this morning we're going to read the whole thing um, and then over the next couple of weeks we won't go back and touch on every part of it but we will touch on the sixth day and the seventh day again as kind of the high points of this creation passage. So today we'll look at the whole thing from 1-1 to 2-3, and then next week we'll look at the creation of humanity in God's image, and then the following week, uh, the Sabbath that we see on the seventh day. So, <clears throat> But the thing that we see in the whole text, the text as a whole, is the fact that, not how, again, but that God made the world as a place for kind of a kingly dwelling. One of the commentators I read said, called it, it's a, it's a palace. This world is a palace. As we looked last week, it's a temple, right? It's a, it's a grand, beautiful vision of the cosmos that God made the world as a place for kingly dwelling, especially for humanity, as kind of the pinnacle of his creative work, and especially for God dwelling with humanity in this palace, 
right, that he's made. So um, that's what we'll look at this morning. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll read the passage. Father, um, we always need your help as we consider your word. Uh, sometimes uh, it seems like we need that help uh, more than other times when the culture uh, that you um, had your word written in and to um, is so distinct and uh, distant from ours. We pray that you would give us clarity about the, the important things that we see here at the beginning of your holy scriptures, the, the beginning of, um, of what you're doing in the world and, and what you're doing throughout your uh, your redemptive work in the world to save people. Help us to know what we need for salvation, for a relationship with you, to live as your people in this world that you've made. Help us to see that in this text, and uh, we pray especially that you would shape it in light of your Son, um, in light of who you are and what you've done through him, through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, what kind of account is this? What kind of writing is this? Literarily. What kind of genre or style, uh, what kind of language do we see in this account? It's one of the most famous accounts in uh, the history of the world, Uh, one of the most amazing, one of the most wonderful. You could just take this page out of the Bible and meditate on it for the rest of your life, probably, uh, to see everything that's going on here. But what kind of an account is it? Um, I think everybody who who reads it uh, notices several of its prominent features that there are, uh, there are patterns there's repetition, there's structure, there's development, right? Um, there's repetition in the fact that on each of these days that we see, the seven days of God's uh, work week, right? Um, each of these days, it, it has, uh, and God said, and God said. Uh, that's a repetition. Each one repeats, God saw that it was good, right? with the end uh, result being it, he looks at it all and sees that it's very good. Behold, it's very good, right? You've got repetition and you've got building of, um, of something there, right? <clears throat> you've got the repetition of uh, each day there was evening and there was morning, the whatever day it was, right? Um, you've, got, uh, you've got larger patterns, which I've tried to, I guess, bring out visually in this this. Uh, sheet that you might have picked up. <clears throat> You've got larger patterns. The first three days, days one through three, uh, and, and the parallelism between those, uh, those and the days four, five, and six, right? So days one through three are the creation of realms, and days four through six are the creation of rulers of those realms, and they line up, right? Day one lines up with day four, and day two lines up with day five, and day three with day six, right? Uh, you've got the realms being created, and you've got the creatures, the, the inhabitants, the rulers of those realms being created. So there's uh, a structure on a large scale, <clears throat> um, and, and you see that scale, actually, it's uh, mentioned a few times other than just in those days. At the beginning of the text, you say, you know, this is God creating the heavens and the earth before the earth was without form and void. So it hadn't yet been formed, the realm hadn't been shaped, and it was void, it was empty, there were no rulers, right? There was no inhabitants. And you've got those two categories that you see throughout the text, and then the the end of the text uh, finishes up, thus were the heavens and the earth created, those realms, and all the host of them, everything that filled them uh, that was to rule over those realms, right? So you've got that kind of uh, structure that's just... um, it's, it's beautifully done. It's wonderfully done. It's a masterpiece of a text. And it, it doesn't end there. I mean, you've got different uh, other parallels and structures. In, in uh, days three and six, which are the days that align as transitions, uh, they, you've got two creative acts in each of those days. It says, and God said twice in day three. And it says, and God said two different times in day six. And the second time of each of those days 
is a transitional time. It kind of leads into the next segment of the uh, creative work week. Um, and then at the end of it, uh, what do you have? You have seven days. Seven days, which is um, it's a symbolic number, right? It's a symbolic number that uh, throughout history, people have looked at that as the symbol of divine perfection, the symbol of completion, the symbol of fullness, right? So all of this is constructed and structured and patterned with uh, repetition and development and themes um, that make us ask, what kind of written work is this? This is not just a normal kind of account, like a biographical account or uh, what we would understand kind of a historical account to be. It's not uh, not something like you see in uh, Chronicles or Samuel or Kings. It's it's different from that. It's it's a differently structured, differently filled uh, text with a different purpose. What kind? I think we should all recognize it. If you can step back kind of far enough to look at it, to take it all in, you would recognize what kind of text this is. What, what kind of written work has repeated lines, like stanzas, you know, um, refrains? Um, what kind of work has such parallelism? What kind of work has cyclical uh, development of themes and symbolic numbers? I mean, these are all common elements of Hebrew poetry, but it's a song. This text is a song. This is the kind of thing you recognize when you know music and you see lyrics, this kind of uh, repetition, this kind of development, this kind of structure, right? this kind of rhythm. It, it's, this is a song at the beginning of the Holy Scriptures. Has anyone ever put this to music? I'd be interested <clears throat> to know that. Uh, somebody should. Maybe somebody should talk to Matthew Curl over at InTown <clears throat> to tell him to put the song of creation into, into music. But... It's a song. It's exalted poetic narrative. It's not just regular prose. It's not just kind of a regular humdrum account of how things came into being. This is a song. Um, It's not merely descriptive, then. It's not merely descriptive. It's not merely informative, informational. It's actually celebratory. Because a song is generally celebratory. You sing when just words, just saying something isn't quite good enough. It doesn't quite get the message across. <clears throat> and so uh, what kind of account of creation do we, ex- do we expect from this kind of writing? You know, a precise, scientific, orderly explanation of the beginning of the material world? Um, it's not that. Right? It's not that. Uh, we need to take it on its own terms. It's written in a particular style, it's a particular genre, and it's narrating something in particular for a purpose, right? Uh, and, it, and it really is difficult for us today <clears throat> to look at um, Genesis 1 this way because we're trained just to look for scientific, observational, you know, uh, that kind of a narrative. It is a historical narrative, but it's a highly selective one, right? Not everything uh, that we know about the created world is talked about in this account of creation. Right? Not every kind of creature is mentioned. Not... Uh, not every corner of the universe is mentioned. It's not mentioned in the ways that we think about it, right? Uh, it's a highly selective narrative. That, Tim Keller says that the Bible is incredibly selective in telling you what you need to know about having a relationship with God. Right? The Bible is not meant as a scientific text. It's not meant to inform us about things like that, that we can explore in nature our, on our own, really. Right? <clears throat> it's, uh, it's meant to tell us how to have a relationship with God. It doesn't answer all the questions we might want it to answer, a highly selective, it's a highly structured account, it's a delightful account. It's a poetic one, right? We need to look at it that way to take it on its own terms. The author's more concerned to communicate who and why and what than, uh, than to satisfy our, our curiosity about how and when. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> one of the first things that you see when you see the seven days of creation is it's a week. Right? We understand it in terms of our week. Uh, and that's an anthropomorphism. If, that, uh, if you're not familiar with that term, it basically means we, we look at God, we look at his works, we look at who he is and what he's done in light of things that are easier for us to understand as human beings. Right? So we have a week where we do work and we take rest on a day. And uh, that comes from scriptures. God has uh, instructed his people to do that. 
But this account is kind of an anthropomorphic vision of God. Who knows how long it took him to do this stuff, right? Uh, but it's being communicated in this way in a song. It's being packaged to us and delivered to us in this way to tell us something, right? To tell us that uh, he takes delight in his work, in his work week. And it's, it's communicating a lot of things, actually too many things for us to explore in this or even in our sermon discussion time uh, afterwards. But it's, it's this work week that's communicating something to us about who God is and what he's done, what his plans are for creation. And it first and foremost stands in stark contrast with its uh, kind of ancient competitors for how to understand God or the gods and how to understand the world that God has made, why he's made what he's made, right? Ancient cosmologies, all these things from Egypt and from Mesopotamia, all these things that existed when Israel was um, being uh, led out of Egypt into their promised land when Moses compiled this text and he, uh, he wrote God's word to God's people in the middle of this, you know, everybody's a pagan, everybody's an idolater, everybody's got these competing views of, like, the gods killing each other and the, the earth springing up out of the carcass of a dead god and uh, um, gods creating humans out of the blood of the gods and dirt and things like that. There's, there's so many things here in those, uh, thank you, <clears throat> competing cosmologies that this is, stands in stark contrast with. And we'll look at some of those things um, and again, next week we're going to slow down to, to look at days six and the following week uh, seven. But briefly, we'll go through each day right now, very briefly. Um, actually, before there was the first day, there's this passage, uh, there, there's verse two, right? The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this is kind of, in a sense, before God got started. He'd already created uh, something, right? There, there is no material world. There is no matter that's eternal. God, if, if there is anything, God made it. But what this is showing is that he took those kind of original elements that he had created that had no order. They had no function. They had no purpose in and of themselves, and he's bringing them along, and he's crafting them, and he's shaping them like an artist shapes something for a specific purpose, right? So before day one, in a sense. We don't know how it got there. We don't know how long it was there. God made it. We don't know how or when, you know, those kinds of things. It's not seeking to answer those. It's not giving us uh, those kinds of answers. But before God started, there was darkness. There was chaos. There was tumult, disorder, right? Uh, that's the picture that you see in, in verse 2. It, things were without form and void. And from that, God brings the heavens and the earth, and uh, Henry Blochet says that the heavens and the earth is a formula which always designates the totality of the universe in its order and beauty. So original state is disorder, nothing beautiful. There's nothing going on. And God takes it and he shapes it and he brings order and he brings beauty. And then you have the universe, the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> and... Who's the God who, who did this? We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, the eternal trinity was the only one around, right? He's the God who created. And, um, and in this text, we're given more, something more, that again is not fully um, articulated until we see later, especially in the New Testament, you see the fact that, that God is clearly one God in three persons. But I think you see those three persons at work here in this text. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that is, um, that's a very personal image. It's not, it, you know, sometimes we conceive of the Spirit of God as if it's some kind of neutral, life-giving force. Some kind of force field or some kind of mystical, non-personal thing, Right? But the Spirit of God here is being portrayed very personally because this word uh, hovering, as the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, whatever that means, the waters, the cosmic waters, cosmic chaos. Um, the Spirit of God is hovering, and that word for hovering is only ever used in Hebrew to talk about a bird that has its wings out that's either warming or protecting or teaching her young. Right? So it's this brooding, it's this caring, it's this watching over. 
It's this something that, um, well, birds do, but it's something that, that it's, a, it's a personalization of the Spirit of God. This is not a neutral spirit. The Spirit is, is like a person here. There's care. There's watching over, right? That's what's communicated here in this text. And then in the very next verse, in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And on each day, God said, God said, God said. And, and you see, his word, his word alone is a creative agent. He doesn't say, let there be light. And then with his hands, he somehow fashions photons, right? He says, let there be light. His word goes forth, and then something happens, right? His word has creative power. His word is a creative agent. And you see that clarified for us uh, much more in, uh, in, in the New Testament at the beginning of John's gospel when he says, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was with God like one person is with another person. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So there's distinction from him uh, b- between him and God, and yet he is God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And you see that in our text. There's, there's no time where God creates something where he doesn't speak it into existence through his word. His word has the creative agency. Right? His word has that power. And here we see his word is a person. Right? It's the second person of the Trinity. Um, so you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all active here in in kind of mysterious ways. I'm not saying you would have been able to pick this up before uh, Christ came into the world, before the New Testament was written, but it's there, right? You can see elements of the triune God here at work. And that triune God is a particular kind of God, and he's creating things in a particular kind of way. He's he's got a goal in mind, right? And so um, you see aspects of that goal as you see the way creation is communicated, where you've got those three large, um, or the, the two, two distinct patterns, the creation of the realms and the creation of the rulers of those realms, right? Day, days one through three, he's creating places. In a sense, even in that first day, he's actually maybe creating time because he's creating the separation between light and darkness, the separation between day and night, which is a feature of... Uh, the way that we track time, right? Uh, especially for them, it would have been um, in the ancient world, that's, that's how you keep track of time. That's what time is signified by or measured by. It's days and nights, right? So in a sense, he's creating time and he's creating space, the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything. And then the next three days, he fills those up with creatures uh, to rule over those things. And so um, you see in, in day four, the luminaries, Right? The, the lights that are in the sky that uh, rule over the day and the night. Right? The day and night had been created in day one. In day four, the lights in the sky rule over the day and the night. They, they're given to us, not just for scientific inquiry, again, but for signs and seasons and days and years. These are all human uses of uh, when we look at the sun and the moon and the stars, it has value to us as human beings living in this world. And that's the way that it's being described. It has a function, right? These luminaries have a function. And that's in competition with, again, these ancient surrounding cosmologies, uh, these, uh, these other ways of describing who created the world and how they create it. Um, the, surrounding, the, the countries surrounding them, their neighboring uh, nations in ancient Israel, they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. They saw those things as gods, but here it's being, they're, they're being put in their place. They're not even being named. They're, they're sort of being depersonalized by not being named, by not being given the names sun and moon, right? Uh, because those names uh, would have been the names of gods of neighboring countries. And here uh, the author's saying, no, the one true God made those things. They're not gods, right? They're not supreme. They're put where they are to serve the purpose they're supposed to serve, and God dictated all of that. Right, he's above all those neighboring uh, countries, gods, and then the sea creatures and the air creatures that he blessed and said, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, fill what seems to be in this uh, in this time, and even to us, the seas and the skies. Those are the parts of the world that are kind of out of our reach. Like we don't 
we don't generally think those things can be tamed. They're outside of our control. The sea is a picture of, of chaos. I mean, it's terrifying. Go 100 feet out into the ocean, just swim out there, you're going to be scared to death because you're not in control, right? You can't even reach the skies, the clouds, right? But the sea creatures and the birds that God created to fill those spaces, I mean, they're not, those places aren't out of reach for God. They're all under his control. And he has determined the creatures to, to rule over those realms, even if they're kind of out of our reach, right? Uh, and then the, the place that's within our reach, the land, which was created on day three uh, with the vegetation that becomes the food for all of our, our, these creatures, uh, the land creatures were all created. You know, that, again, it's not an exhaustive list. Uh, the author's not providing us, you know, how every single type of land, uh, you know, organism that lives on land um, comes into being. But uh, these are the animals that roam the earth that basically we can do something about. We can kind of control these things, right? So this, this is our realm now, the land that's being described. We're, we're in a sense, we're kind of limited creatures. Uh, but God, the one God who just spoke, and these things came into being, um, he's in control of all of it. We might be tempted to worship the things that he uh, has placed in the sky, worship the things that he's put in the sea or in the air or on the earth, which all the neighboring uh, surrounding nations to ancient Israel, they, they worship those things. They worship bulls and snakes and birds, you know, and cats in Egypt. And, I mean, they, they worshiped these other things that God has said, nope, I made those. They're not gods. They shouldn't compete with me for your affection, for your allegiance. And, uh, and in fact, I've placed them under, under you, right? You're the greatest of all of these. I've placed them all under you. So uh, for you to worship anything other than the one true God, um, when you see a creation account like this where it's clear he made everything, he put it in its place, he has supreme sovereignty over all of it, uh, for you to worship anything else is to worship something lower than yourself. Uh, even if you worship the sun and the stars, you're a greater creation than those things. Uh, and you shouldn't worship those things because they're, they're just created things, you know. Um, they're, they're amazing, they're wonderful, they're useful, they're beautiful, they're to be celebrated and delighted in, but they're just things. They're not the one true God. Right? And that's the point of this text is to highlight that there is really only one high God. Right? Um, and, uh, and what he's done then in, in day six is to create a supreme living creature. A supreme creature, and that's humanity. Henry Blochet again says, Mankind is the supreme living creature. The narrative has two peaks. He's talking about the narrative of the whole week. He says it has two peaks. Mankind and the Sabbath. The creation of mankind crowns the work, but the Sabbath is its supreme goal. And he says, uh, he quotes Gregory of Nyssa, who I think was a 4th century, 5th century, ancient kind of a Greek uh, theologian. He says, uh, what is the work of the six days other than the building of the palace until the entry into the place prepared of the prince beloved by the father? So everything he's doing in creation up till the second part of the sixth day that's, that's seen here where man is created, everything he's doing is, is building this palace, this, this amazing cosmos and then he's going to set the prince in it, right? He's going to set uh, the king of all the creatures when he creates humanity in his own image to rule over everything. Give, he gives dominion. He blesses humanity, says be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over everything else, right? Over all the other rulers of all the other realms even have dominion. And Jack Collins says, <clears throat> man is presented as the crown of God's creation week, the text has as its main interest in telling us that God made the world as a place for mankind to live, to love, to work, to enjoy, and to worship God. The exalted tone of the passage allows the reader to ponder this with a sense of awe, adoring the goodness, power, and creativity of the, the one who did all this. It also shows the human reader why his embodied existence is good in itself, and is meant to be received as a gift and blessing. <clears throat> so, everything in this world, God said it was good and very good. 
He said, you are good and very good. Your embodied self, the way that you're made, a, a human being in God's image, uh, a body with a soul, the breath of life in you, um, given to you as a gift by God, blessed by God. All of this is to be celebrated. And ultimately, then, he finishes the week. I mean, this is the crescendo, the real, the, the pinnacle of it in day seven, where it's a, basic, it's, it's a picture of God's enthronement. He's created all the kingdoms, all the rulers, all the, and he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's created all, as it says in uh, Colossians, whether rulers or authorities or principalities or everything he's made, and he, and he rests over it. And that picture of rest is not kind of the same picture of rest that we usually have when we think of rest. We think like checking out, taking a break, taking a nap, right? <laughs> like that's a picture of rest for us. We're all going to do that the rest of this day. Um, the, the picture of rest that we see here, that we see in the ancient world, is, is it's a rest from uh, tension. It's a rest from process. It's a rest, you can have rest from war, um, where things are finally the way that they're supposed to be. Right? There's peace, there's shalom. It's that beautiful biblical picture where everything's working the way that it was meant to be. It's got a purpose, it's got a function, and it's serving that. And God looks at it and he says it's good. And it's like this, ah. That's what he's uh, communicating by saying that uh, he blessed the seventh day when he rested from all his work. If it were meant to be kind of a, uh, a scientific sort of an account of the origin of material uh, nature, the, the cosmos that we see, if it were just meant to be that, the seventh day just wouldn't make any sense. It's kind of extraneous, kind of like tacked on to the end. No creative work happens, right? But if you take this as an account of uh, who God is and what he's doing with the whole of creation and the purpose that he has and the goal, it's going somewhere. There's a trajectory here. The goal of it all, you take that in mind, then uh, the seventh day becomes the most important day, right? Nothing more is being created. It's no longer kind of a, that account of creation, um, but uh, it's the most important day. It's a theological narrative that we're seeing, right? And uh, John Walton says uh, that without hesitation, the ancient reader would conclude that this is a temple text and that day seven is the most important of the seven days. In a material account, day seven would have little role, but in a functional account, it is the true climax without which nothing else would make any sense or have any meaning. He says, deity rests in a temple and only in a temple. This is what temples were built for. Right? So ancients would build a temple as a place and they'd call their God to come and rest in their temple and to be there, to have presence. And um, uh, after this creation, rest is God's presence settling down to enjoy what he's made, to use it as it was intended to be used all along from the beginning. Uh, again, Walton says that the most central truth to the creation account is that this world is a place for God's presence. Though all of the functions are anthropocentric, meaning this world is, in a sense, like largely focused around us. Like the, the account is given to show us how, um, how we're the pinnacle of creation and everything around us is meant for our enjoyment. Uh, it's an anthropocentric, in that sense, meeting the needs of humanity. The cosmic temple, all of it, is theocentric with God's presence serving as the defining element of existence. So if the day seven hadn't happened, right, if God hadn't, um, in a sense, created the computer and sat down to play with it, you know, then it, it wouldn't be full. It wouldn't be complete. You'd be missing something, right? Um, but he's, he's created the world, and now he's sitting down to enjoy it, right? for the purpose that he's created, created it for, to be his palace, to be his temple. He says uh, in Isaiah 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What's the house that you would build for me? Where is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He's saying the heavens and the earth, that's my temple. You didn't build me some little house uh, that, that I would dwell in it. I built the universe, and it's my temple. It's where I dwell 
It's where my presence dwells. And Isaiah 6, uh, uh, the, the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All right, so God built his own temple. It's the whole ordered cosmos. And on the seventh day, God moved in to dwell in his creation and with his creation. God put this universe together for humanity, primarily. That's what you see in this account. It's, it's for us. It's like a gift to us, all of it. And his presence as Lord over all of it is the key feature to it. Right? This whole place is built for us, and the key feature of it is the presence of the Lord, that we get to enjoy his presence in and through everything that he's made. Right? So... Um, Henry Blochet again says that the, uh, the Sabbath informs mankind that he will not fulfill his humanity in his relation to the world which he's transforming, the world that he's working in, right? but only when he raises his eyes above in the blessed holy hour of communion with the Creator. Right? So this world, it makes sense for us. It's functional and purposeful for us. It works for us, and all of it points to God and is best experienced in relationship to him. Everything in this world points us to relationship with God. It shows us his glory, shows us his creativity, it shows us his delight. It's his, his presence comes to us in this world that he's made. Right? Um, and that, that's the kind of God that he is. He creates the entire universe to enjoy himself, to enjoy and to rule and he gives it to us as a gift, and he makes humans, he makes his creatures to share his own place in the temple. That's, he gives it all to us as a gift, and he gives us his own place. He says, you take dominion over all of it. He can only give us that. It's his dominion. It's his rule. It's his authority. And he gives it to us, to stuff that he made, you know, to other creatures, uh, creatures that he made. And he, he does this. He, uh, he makes human creatures to share his own place in everything that he's made. He's done this most ultimately and most wonderfully in the person of his son, who is both creator and creature. He's both Lord of lords and the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Right? And uh, he's both God and man, uh, creator and creature dwelling together in one person. And so some applications of this, um, I know that's it's a lot of heady stuff. I've got to race through it to kind of see from a bird's eye view everything that's going on here. But there are a lot of applications uh, of this for not just ancient Israelites, but for us. Right? There's a lot of applications to this, this account of creation being the way that God has communicated to us that he's God and that he's made everything and he's made everything for a purpose. Right? Um, uh, ultimate, you know, the, the first application is it speaks against idolatry. It speaks against having some other God as your God. It speaks against idolatry of created things, which, again, for the ancient Israelites was clear as day. They've got a snake. They worship the snake. God made creeping things that creep on the earth. Right? They've got a bull. God made stuff like that. They've got a sun that they've named that hangs in the, in the sky during the daytime. No, God made all that. These are not competing gods. Nowhere near it. They're creatures. So everything God made is not to be an idol for us. This is, this is a, you know, an attack against idolatry. Um, the only true God did these things. Right? And he didn't create everything through violence. He didn't create everything through conflict. Like a lot of the, these competing worldviews would have said, it's like there's two gods at the beginning. One's good, one's evil, and they fight. And there, there's this ongoing fight. Or one dies and everything springs up out of his carcass. Or you know, whatever. There's no violence. There's complete sovereignty. And there's joy. There's ultimate power in this one God. There's no competing gods. Right? There's no conflict. Um, God's creation works how it's supposed to work. Everything that we see is good. Right? He, he made it good, and behold, it was all very good. And even now, there's, there's no other religion, there's no other worldview that teaches this. Even now, there's, there's nothing like this. Right? People think either uh, the material world is probably evil 
and the spiritual world, the spiritual realm. That's what really matters, you know, so don't worry about the material stuff. Or there's too much focus on the material. There's the material's all there is. It really, it becomes, it takes the place of God. Or the material's illusory. It's not even real. It's all a dream, you know. There's nothing like this account of the God who made all things. And it's, it's real, and it's good, and it serves a purpose. And he's working with it, and he's not done with it, and he'll never be done with it. He's never going to be done with this world, so don't, don't write it off. Right? Um, he's got a creation that works how it's supposed to work. He created humanity. Again, these ancient uh, competing uh, worldviews and philosophies of um, where did human beings come from. It's like, well, the gods created us to be slaves. They had some work needed to be done. They wanted to kick back up on Mount Olympus or whatever, and... Um, and so they, they created humans to do this slavish kind of work, unpleasant kind of stuff, to serve the gods, right? Uh, that's, that's almost all the ancient um, kind of myths, right, about uh, why human beings were... God, this God, created humanity not for slaves. Uh, he gave them an exalted position over everything that he's made as those who can share his own joyful rule, his own delight in everything that he's made, right? So either this one true God who does things this way or some other created, false, pretty lame God, those are your choices. You're going to worship something. You're going to give your allegiance to something. You're going to live for something. How's this God sound? (laughs) Sounds pretty wonderful, uh, are you going to devote your life and your existence to things that were just made by this God? Things actually that were made to be less than you, that were made for you? Or will you worship the one who's actually God? It's, the, it's one of the main questions this text uh, puts in front of every one of us. Are you going to actually worship this God? Uh, it says in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, just his word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath, uh, also translated spirit, um, of his mouth, all their host. The heavens were made, all their host, by his word, by his breath, by his spirit. He gathers the waters of the sea as heaps. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, him, Yahweh, the one true God. He's the one who's done this. Let all, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And Second Peter 3, The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. It's this God who speaks things into existence. Who speaks thing, things into order and function and purpose and beauty. And goodness. That's the God that all the earth needs to fear. And that's, that's something for our faith. Right? Because we, uh, we can't peer back into the very beginning of all things. You know, the mysteries of the ancient universe, the beginning of time, all that. You can't see that stuff. Right? Um, it's something for our faith. But we believe this account to be true. Uh, because it resonates with us on a deep spiritual level. Everything that you see in this text, it makes sense to us. It resonates with us as human beings who know in spite of the way this material world looks like everything's futile, fleeting, meaningless, there's dignity, there's order, there's purpose, there's beauty, all these things. We know it somewhere deep inside of us. You can't know it because you observed it. You know it because you know, you know it, right? This is a matter for your faith, and you've got to put your faith in the God who does this kind of stuff. You've got to look at him. You've got to look at his glory that you see around you in everything that he's made, everything that he's given to you. Look at his glory. Look at his creativity. Look at his joy, right? This is a song. Look at his joy. Look at his power. Look what he's able to do. Look at the level of care and control that he exercises over everything that he's made. Uh, John Collins says, the implication of this account is that the pious reader, um, not kind of negative connotation of pious there, just pious, right? The pious reader should likewise adore the creator 
exult in creation, and revel in the Sabbath. His being our maker and the maker of everything, and the way that he's doing this, it should be enough. It should be enough for us to delight in who he is and to trust him and to live for him and to have him as our one true God. It should be enough, but it's not because we've sinned, because we don't trust him, because we've broken everything in the world through our sin and rebellion, especially our relationship with him, and that broken relationship needs to be restored. You can't just go to Genesis 1 and see this God and have a perfect relationship with him anymore. You've messed that up too bad. We've all done it, right? Humanity has uh, plunged this world back into a state of chaos, into a state of disorder and unruliness through our chaos, through our rebellion, right? Uh, we've done that, so we need our broken relationship restored, and God's been working then, which Heidi read in uh, John 5, Jesus said, God's been working even till now. The Father has been working. We have this concept of the Sabbath where he rested from his work, but man, since then, he's been working to, to renew the earth, to recreate everything, to make everything new, the new heavens and the new earth. He's been working from, from then until now. He's been at work to remake what we broke. The, the creator even became a creature himself. He came to heal. Again, as we saw in that passage from John 5, he takes this paralyzed man who can't even put himself in the pool to be healed before the stampede rushed, rushes in and everybody else gets healed instead of him or whatever. I'm not sure how that story works exactly. We'll study that some other time. But uh, this, this paralyzed man, Jesus, the creator, became the creature to come in and heal him. He's always healing people. He's always fixing things that are broken. He's always bringing life where there was only death. He's always bringing order from chaos. That's who he is, and that's what he's done. He's always working to do that. He came in the person of his son to do that, and ultimately at the cross, at the cross where um, the, the creator was undone where the creator was unmade, where his soul saw chaos and emptiness and the void, to be able to remake us, to be able to restore us in God's image, to be able to reconcile us relationally to God, to be able to share, as Jesus says in John 17 in his prayer, to be able to share his own glory with us that he shared with the Father before the foundations of the world. Do you deserve that? What kind of a God is it that would do that? You should worship him. He's the one true God. Right? That's one thing that our text says. There's, there's no other God. And this God's an amazing God. And because of his creative power and because of his grace, ultimately, we see in Jesus Christ, there should be no other rival for your affection and your allegiance and your worship and your loyalty. We also see another application. We see the meaningfulness of life, right? Uh, maybe you should pick up this book. It's a really great book by a couple guys, Benjamin Wicker and uh, Jonathan Witt. It's called A Meaningful World. And the subtitle is uh, something like how the arts and science, sciences uh, reveal the genius of nature. Right? So it's an exploration of the world that we see and uh, the way that that reveals some amazing stuff about God. But they say this world is meaningful. Right? This world is full of meaning. And that means, uh, I mean, a lot of us are tempted. We, we look around and we don't see the meaning. We have a perspective on this world that things are random, things are chaotic, things are vain, things are useless. There's no positive trajectory here. There's no intrinsic value. There's no intrinsic meaning or purpose. Right? We, we have a tendency to look at the world that way. But this world that we see in the song of creation is full of meaning and it's full of joy. Again, it's a song, right? Um, so don't give up on life. <laughs> don't, don't let circumstances get you that far down. You're just despairing of finding anything of value in this world. Don't give up on life. Don't check out of this world. This world is God's long-term project. He created it good and very good and he's bringing it to a place where it'll be exceedingly good. It'll be wonderful. Its ultimate renewal and its perfection will be the end result of everything that God is doing. God's not giving up on this world. Don't give up on this world. Don't check out of life. Um, 
and related to that, application-wise, we see the goodness of this this world, right? We see there is some intrinsic goodness left, even though we've distorted things through our rebellion, even though we've we've wrecked our relationship uh, between us and God and really kind of broken things in the whole world, there's still something about this world that God made that can be called good, right? Um, and, and God's not, that is to say, he's not just interested in kind of spirituality, just kind of religion that's like heady, philosophical, intellectual, detached from the environment, detached from your daily life, detached from your work, detached from your surroundings, you know, your garden. God's interested in those things too because he made all of it. He's interested in everything that he made. He's the kind of God who sings at the beginning of all things whose holy scriptures open with this song that's delighting in everything that he made, right? And you can delight in what he's made. It's actually... In your job description, you're supposed to engage in his own relationship with the entire world, which is one of, of, um, of delight and joy. C.S. Lewis says that uh, we do not just want to see beauty when we look at nature. We want something else which we can hardly put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. There's something uh, profound about the world God made that you know if you've looked up at a starry sky at night or you know if you've looked out over the, you know, standing on Mount Hood looking over uh, the valleys and the trees and seeing the city in the distance and you know if you've been in the desert or the Grand Canyon or the beach or wherever you've gone in the forest, you look around at what God has made and there's something uh, tugging you. There's something beautiful. There's something good. There's something to be enjoyed in all of it. And that translates into um, uh, every aspect of your life. Right? Um, every aspect of your life. It says in First Timothy, everything created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Right? Everything created by God is good. Again, we need the gospel to show us how to relate to the world, how we're supposed to, again, and, and to be restored to right relationship with God where we're not idolizing everything that we see in nature, where we're not looking uh, to a, a starry sky or the Grand Canyon to give us, to fill us up with the, the sense of awe that we should have before God, right? But there is real goodness, and we can be restored to a relationship with the world where we can receive everything with thanksgiving. We can do our work, right? We're, we're made for work. We're not made, as the ancient cosmogenies say, we're not made to be slaves of God toiling and toiling. Toil is a part of the brokenness of the world that we've brought upon ourselves, right? But we're made for work, and work is supposed to be good, right? All kinds of work, farming, taking care of animals, doing arts, literature, dirty jobs, thoughtful jobs, science, right? All, all of those, all kinds of work are good and, um, and meaningful, and we're supposed to engage in them. And then finally, I'll just close with this, uh, being part of the worshipful community, we're made for community. We'll look at this more next week as we look at humanity made in God's image. We're made for relationship. Community is a big part of what God's doing in the history of the world. And uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when he's kind of laying out how a, a worship service should go, there should be order. Things should be intelligible. You should say things in languages that people understand so you can build each other up because you're trying to love each other. Your worship of God and your love of each other go hand in hand, uh, and, it, and it comes down to this. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says, God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of disorder, of chaos. Remember, you see in the creation account, he takes it from there, and he takes it to order. He's a God of peace, says. Harmony, shalom, order. And, um, and this God is celebratory. He's a God who sings, whose scriptures are full of songs. What are the holy scriptures are full of songs? Begin with songs, have whole books of songs. This is a God who sings. This is a God of order. And those kinds of things should characterize our time together. Delightful singing, saying things that make sense to each other and to, to those who are outside so that people might be able to understand more about who God is. 
and more about why he's made us and why he's made all things, what he's doing in our lives, what he's doing in the world, and what he's doing in eternity. At the very least, again, this means kind of communication for the sake of understanding. So we didn't cover everything now. If you've got more questions, join us for sermon discussion in a little while. <laughs> Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, this text is profound and um, overwhelming in everything that it communicates to us. We pray that uh, you would strike home especially uh, the central features of this text, that you truly are God and you are exalted above all that you've made. Um, and yet you come to meet us in what you have made. And you've given us everything that you've made as a gift. You've loved us that much. Who are we that you would love us like this? We know we don't deserve your love. We pray that uh, you would make your love more real to us through the gospel of your son Jesus, that you would assure us now, even as we come to this table, that you would assure us of your great love that's uh, given to us not just in creation but in our redemption in, in um, in his person and in his work on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.